1: The professional's choice. All right, guys, another great podcast on tap for you guys today. Um, We have a great topic, something that a lot of you might be interested in, um, and a great guest to talk on that topic. Super smart dude. Great guy. Before I get into that, I just want to bring something up. You ever walk into a grocery store and notice that there's a ton of refrigerated reach-ins or reach-ins that are for purposes of cooling product, like a reach-in cooler. There are tons of them. There's open display cases, there's closed display cases. You ever think about how all of that's done behind the scenes? I've had conversations with people in the trade that do supermarket refrigeration, but I haven't actually gone in depth the way that this podcast goes in depth on how it's all done, all right? Mario Gomez, okay, he's the guest. He's got a lot of experience in this part of the trade. So you guys are gonna wanna listen up and pay attention. You're gonna learn a lot from Mario. We actually, we're gonna do uh, two topics on the podcast because Mario's other expertise is high-rise building chiller plants and heating plants but we talked about supermarket refrigeration um, to the point where we never had time so we're gonna have to get mario back on the podcast again um, to do a secondary uh, a follow-up if you will on this conversation but guys listen up please this is going to be a great one this is the hvac know-it-all podcast i'm your host gary McCree. All right, today's True Tech Tools Minute. You guys that follow me on social media, you've seen the logo I had made up um, the Vacuum Police, vacuum rated AF. That's just kind of having some fun with how passionate people are pulling a vacuum these days. You see pictures online of people getting down to uh, 50 microns and whatnot. Now, AccuTools has the True Blue hose out. Okay, there's tons of kits available. True Tech Tools and a lot of them are on sale right now. So the AccuTools True Blue Hose is a PVC hose Okay, the inside diameter is three quarter inch and it pulls 80 times faster than your traditional quarter inch hose You guys got to check them out Promo code know-it-all to save eight percent on your purchase and like always I'll leave a link in the podcast notes regarding preferred testo pricing. Airflow testing was something I really didn't get into too much coming up as a tech in the trade. Maybe because we got balancers involved if there was any major air distribution issues. Now, I know in the residential land, a lot of techs, um, they tackle the air distribution issues themselves. Uh, This is something I want to get more into, actually, and recently i received the testo 417 okay and i'm going to be doing a uh, demo slash review and checking some airflow now it checks um airflow and temp it's a rotating vane anometer. okay and you can use it for checking supply air grills um, return air grills and you can use it uh the tool by itself and you can kind of traverse the grill or it comes with a couple of different funnels that you can pr- put right over top of it so you don't have to do the the traverse. And then you can kind of calculate your airflow coming in or out of each uh, grill or diffuser. So I'm going to be testing that out very, very soon. So look for that uh, coming in the near future. I'll be posting it on my uh, YouTube channel and social feeds. Uh, I posted a picture of my Yellow Jacket Super Evac manifold uh, just recently and the debate always when I post it is that gauge on top well it, it serves no purpose most people say but the thing is yes yes it does serve a purpose the purpose I use it for is this when I'm pulling a vacuum there's a little gauge port quarter inch gauge port at the back or uh, hose connection at the back of the manifold now I have that hooked up to a hose that is connected to my charging tank Sorry, guys, I got a bit of a cold, so just bear with me. So as as I'm pulling a vacuum, that hose going to the charging tank is under a vacuum. So when I'm done pulling a vacuum, I don't have to take any hoses off, disconnect nothing from the system. I just open my charging tank and allow the refrigerant to flow. The the Super Evac manifold has two ball valves. I can ball ball valve the pump off, okay, the pump side off, and just have the system side open. And I can flow the refrigerant into the system. And that gauge on top will tell me when I'm at a slight positive. Why do I want to know that? Because I want to remove my micron gauge before the pressure in the system gets too high. Some micron gauges can take uh, a lot of positive pressure. Some can only take a little bit. But I want to make certain that I'm taking it off when I'm at a slight positive. That way I'm ensuring I don't damage it. And I'm ensuring I don't push any contaminants like refrigerant oil. Back into the micron gauge because refrigerant oil can actually um, damage it and cause it to not work properly. Then you got to clean it out and it becomes a pain in the ass. All right, so that's what I use it for. And I've heard rumors, yes, that you should not charge with your evacuation hoses or your vacuum hoses because over time it could potentially damage the hose. Now, my thinking is this I can replace the hose if it becomes damaged. Okay, what I don't want to do is start disconnecting parts of the system, um, potentially getting air and moisture back in the system. I'd rather just leave it as is under a tight, dry vacuum and let my refrigerant fly. And if I have to replace a hose because potential damage could occur because I'm charging um, refrigerant through a vacuum hose, then so be it. I'll replace that hose. That's what my company is in place to do, to replace damaged parts. So just keep that in mind. That's, that's my opinion on it. You might have a different one, but that's my opinion. Um, going forward with refrigeration technology stuff, um, Viper wet rag, guys, um, it's a superior compound when it comes to protecting uh, reversing valves, TX valves, even dryers, because you don't want to burn the paint off a filter dryer. Because if you do, uh, you're exposing the under, uh, under the paint there, and that can become corroded and start leaking over time because that paint is to protect the dryer. So protecting that paint from chipping away while brazing will protect the dryer's longevity, Okay, especially if it's outside. So you mold it around to protect the device. And a lot of people say, why not just use a wet rag, like a soaked rag in water? Well, I did a test, um, a wet rag versus Viper wet rag and Viper wet rag came out way ahead as far as the amount of heat transfer um, that happened between the wet rag and the Viper wet rag. Uh, There's a video on YouTube I made of it so you can guys go to my channel, scroll through and and you can check that out. It's called uh, wet rag versus wet rag or Viper wet rag versus wet rag. Uh, Cool Air Products, they posted um, or they sent me a cool little write-up article, bulletin, whatever you call it. Um, Because they're trying to break the mold on refrigerant sealants, like internal sealants for refrigeration systems. Now, we've all heard the rumors that internal sealants clog stuff up. Yes, that's because the stuff that you're hearing about is polymer-based. It works off of a chemical reaction. Okay, Um, AC Smart Seal that's made by Cool Air Products is an oil-based product. It's an oil-based sealant. It doesn't work off a chemical reaction. It works off a mechanical action where it actually seals the leak like blood platelets in your body passing by um, the opening. Okay. Um, It's not the same. It doesn't clog anything up. I've tested it. I did a video on it. I injected it into a bottle of water. Okay, and all it did was separate like oil and water. There's no hard deposits, nothing. Okay, I've had my my testo gauge is on a system with it on there, nothing. Um, I've had the system that I put it in, no clogs, okay, guys? So this is the difference between the sealants. Polymer-based will clog up a system if there's air and moisture present. Oil-based will not. Okay, you got to break, you gotta break that, um, that old thinking, that old way of thinking when it comes to sealants. They're not all made equal, and technology advances through time. Okay, so I hope you guys entered the uh, Field Pulse contest for the sign. It was a pretty cool sign. The um, An accident hasn't taken place in or whatever it said. It was a pretty cool sign. Um, I wouldn't mind having one for my garage or shop or whatever if I had a shop. <laughs> I don't have a shop at the moment, but my garage or, or uh, even in my van. I could hang it in my van. It's a pretty cool sign. Um, but they also offer their, their app, Simply Send, which is free invoicing and free estimating 100% all of the time okay and if you want to upgrade the field pulse, you get your 14-day free trial that's paperless billing invoicing uh crm uh fleet management work orders you name it
2: all right so guys i got a a guest on the phone and as i told you in the intro we got mario and Mario uh, used to do a lot of rack refrigeration stuff for supermarkets, and I kind of, um, I know how he feels because my neighbor and one of my friends actually does supermarket refrigeration, and when he's on call, he is never home on the weekends. So you know how that feels, right, Mario? I very much do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> how you doing tonight, man? Yeah, it's uh...
0: I'm good, I'm good, yeah, um well,
2: I'm glad you could make it got, on the podcast yeah. and uh sorry, man, I just want to thank you for getting onto the podcast and um it, it's it's gonna be another good oh, one, thanks because, for having me, yeah, for sure man and and from when I talked to you earlier today, um the amount of knowledge that that you um shone upon me in that few minutes was incredible, so um I think that we're going to spread that knowledge to the listeners tonight. And, well, it might not be tonight when you guys are listening, but it's tonight for me. And (laughs) what time is it where you are right now, Mario? It's got to be around quarter to six, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah. It's about 20 to six here in uh, Southern California. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Cool. So um, a little bit about you, I guess, uh, before we get into the, the meat and potatoes. How uh, we, we do this with all all the guests uh, uh, their first time on the podcast just so we can get a feel for the conversation and, and everybody gets gets to know who you are. How did you get started out in the trade of HVAC and and how did you you progress forward to where you're at now? Uh, it's
0: kind of a long story, but I'll try to make it short. Um, my dad uh, kind of stumbled into it. He used to work for a telecommunications company and he started doing maintenance for them, general maintenance, which led into air conditioning on their telecom uh, remote locations. So at the time I was still um, in school and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for a trade. And I had all kinds of ideas. I I did a bunch of stuff before this, but he was, he was like, you know, it's a good trade. You should try to get into uh, air conditioning. It's uh, it pays well. There's a lot to learn. Um, it's uh, there's a, you know there's a lot of different trades involved in it, and it's it's rewarding. So I didn't really take his advice for a while. <laughs> I went and did all the other things I was going to do for a while. But uh, at some point along the line, um, those things weren't working out too well for me, and uh, I had a friend that also was a friend of my dad's. And uh, he was working for, uh, on the construction side for a local air conditioning outfit. And they needed some help. And he was like, well, you know, let's, if, you, if you'd like, why don't you give it a shot and uh, kind of come up from the bottom, learn air conditioning, and uh, see what you think. And I was willing to make a change at the time. Um, I had kind of spent some summers before this with this family friend just doing side jobs, side work, putting in systems and residential houses and things like that. And it was interesting. You know, it was grunt work at the time, running duct work and all that. We've all done that. Um, So once I got into the trade, I worked for a pretty small shop, mom and pop shop in Southern California. And uh, they basically, uh, well, it was like a 60, 40 split commercial residential. And, uh, Pretty much did it all. Did service, did installation, uh, did piping, electrical, plumbing, uh, of course, duct work, and then uh, started picking up troubleshooting. So they'd send me out and do troubleshooting work. So I became a service tech and I just picked it up really quick. So I worked for that place, for that shop for several years. Um, And then I think I'd been there about four, five, six years, and then I decided. Uh, I'd gotten married and I was going to move to Houston. So moved to Houston and uh, worked for a small mom and pop outfit in a small town outside Houston for a few years and realized that I wanted to, I wanted to grow. I I didn't want to just keep doing the same thing in uh, residential work and small stuff. So there was a a pretty well-respected commercial outfit in Houston And uh, I turned in a resume with them, and they pretty much gave me an offer right away. And that's what led me into uh, commercial uh, refrigeration and
2: working on market refrigeration and racks. That was probably the best
0: move I ever made.
2: So I was going to say, so the... um, as I was mentioning in the beginning of the podcast, so my neighbor, he does the supermarket stuff and when he's on call, he's, he's gone like literally all weekend. So, and and you know how that feels, right? And, and I think everybody that I've talked to in the supermarket, um, refrigeration, uh, part of the trade, it's the same thing. It's not just, it's not just him or you, it's, it's, it's everybody in supermarket refrigeration because it's, it's, um, it's, 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 like you have a, a freezer full of meat or a cooler full of meat and there could be like what, let's say the value of, of meat in a freezer. Can there be a couple of million bucks worth of meat in a freezer, for instance, like that, that's, that's a lot of money. So if the freezer yeah. go if the freezer goes down, I mean, you got to be there right away or there's tons and tons of money lost. Right. Yeah. Basically the way I had it explained to me is the difference between
0: air conditioning, at least in non-critical environments, and refrigeration is the difference between comfort and product loss. So we're talking revenue. You're, you're talking, uh, you're talking money, basically. Yeah, exactly. So in air conditioning, in air conditioning, you're just keeping people comfortable, but in refrigeration, you're protecting uh, customer product, customer uh, investment, pro- customer value. So product is very important to them. And yes. Um, you're, when you're on standby, you're going to get called out because it doesn't matter what time of day that freezer goes down. If it's two in the morning, you're going out there and you're going to get that thing running, and you're not leaving until it's running. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you have to do. If you have to open a supply house, you're going to get what's necessary, even if it's a new compressor. Uh, call a friend, call someone in your group, and get out there and put that thing in right now because you got to get it up and running. Yeah, because yeah, they don't
2: they don't want to lose product. That's their bread and butter. That's their livelihood. So, yeah, product is, is life when it comes to refrigeration. So, so let me ask you this, because um, I, I do some critical stuff as well, and luckily, some of the newer uh, buildings that have gone up, um, pharmaceutical-wise that I take care of, they actually put 100% redundancy in in all their walk-in boxes. So, each walk-in yeah. box, freezer or cooler, doesn't matter which one, they put in 100% redundancy, and if one fails... Uh, the other one is just set a smidge higher, you know what I mean, as a backup. So mm-hmm. at, the, at, yeah. at the same time, it'll kick in. It's still within the range that it, it's supposed to be in the temperature, but someone will get a lar- an alarm saying, hey, that's that's been higher for two hours now. I wonder if it's switched over to backup. They call us in and, and we check it out. So from from your experience in the supermarket world, did they put in redundancy or did they just totally forget or or fail to do that, and then they have all oh, they have the, these emergencies on their hand all the time. It's it's not a it's not a,
0: a lapse in the you know they're not forgetting to do it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It's a cost issue. Yeah. They don't put redundancy in markets, and that's plain and simple. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been working, you know, I've worked on markets. I don't. I'm not currently on markets, but I was on markets for many years, and uh, I've I've yet to see any market that has redundancy. Wow. Zero. Oh, yeah. That, that's, yeah crazy. that's just that's the case. Cr- it's crazy it, when it's, you think it's about an it. an initial cost issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's, there's limited space for one thing. So mm-hmm. you have, uh, you know, if you think about equipment locations, you think, have to think about cost. markets. Honestly, uh, refrigeration is a tough business to make money in um, uh, market refrigeration is tough for the, the, the contracting to make money, but it's also a tough business for the stores to make money. So, they they cut their margins pretty pretty tight, mm-hmm. um, honestly, and they, they really don't invest in the stores the way that uh, that you would like to see them do. Yeah, and i've i dealt with i've dealt with low end markets. I've dealt with really high end markets, and a lot of the big box stores that are nationwide, even in Canada, United States. We're talking Target. We're talking uh, Walmart's. Um, I don't know if you guys have Walmart's north of oh. the border, but oh yeah, tons. Uh, <laughs> you got okay. Yeah. Didn't know if you had them in Canada. I know you got Targets up there. I'm pretty sure. We
2: actually um, had had tar- to- We had Target, and then they uh, they pulled out. We they, we had Target for a couple that's of years, right. and they they pulled out of Canada. They that's weren't they weren't doing well. I remember time. I
0: remember reading at that 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 now that's right. Yeah. Well, the, I don't know what your big box stores are there, but yeah, they they pretty much. Uh, I don't understand, you know, it's not, I do understand it, that I know it's a cause issue, but no, there's no redundancy. So it would be great, but then it would reduce our, the need for us as much.
1: <laughs> so yeah. it's
0: a double-edged sword. You know, we, we oftentimes complain about out at all hours till one, two, three in the morning, working 60, 70 a- hour weeks. Um, but at the same time, if they had all these, uh, if they had all this redundancy in place, they'd probably need us a lot less and.
2: Some of the guys would be like, "Hey, I like my overtime <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I guess exactly. you can't make everybody happy all the time, yeah, exactly so so um let let's say we walk into a um a machine room or a mechanical room, and like what- what are we gonna expect to see in rack refrigeration like to take us through that as as a visual, so guys that haven't been in one of these rooms and seen this stuff, um, let's, let's be our eyes for a minute and then walk us through into the mechanical room and what we're going to see in that room. Okay. Well, it, a lot of it has to do with, uh, a lot of it has to do with the, the,
0: the geographic region you're in as to what kind of climate you have. Okay. Um, so for instance, uh, right now I'm in Southern California. So uh, we have a, a rather relatively dry climate. Um, and I used to live in Houston, uh, you know, along the Gulf coast of the United States, and that has a relatively humid, uh, uh climate. So in more humid climates, you're going to have your condensers usually somewhere out outside the building on the roof, uh, along the edges of the, this, the, the actual building. Mm-hmm. But in Southern California, because of the dry climate, or this might be what you consider like a desert climate. They use what we call evaporative condensers, and they're usually in the actual motor room with the with the compressor racks.
2: Wow, I didn't so know. So
0: your condenser, yeah, and that's it's pretty common in Southern California to locate them in the same room with the uh, racks. One of the benefits of that is they uh, the room itself will have a uh, uh, two hoods. Well, it will have a makeup air hood, and then the evaporator condenser actually draws air from the actual mechanical room so the room is self cooling so it actually draws ambient outside air draws it across the racks and then uses that air to do the condensing and discharge through usually a hole in the, in the ceiling in the roof of the the room which is watertight and then mm-hmm. it, it discharges it out so you you get a good cooling effect in that room so southern california the mechanical rooms uh for rack refrigeration tend to be tend to run cooler which is a good thing um, but when you enter those rooms uh, they're very noisy because you usually have depending on the size of the, so- of the store two or three parallel racks and what these racks are is they're basically just a, a very large version of a of a, uh, a typical uh, refrigeration circuit or air conditioning circuit on this rack you're going to have several compressors um, they're all going to be tied to a common discharge manifold they're gonna have a common suction manifold, all of the compressors tied to it. And uh, they're all gonna be piped over on the discharge side to wherever the condenser, whether it's on the roof or whether it's in the same room. And then they're gonna come back from the condenser on the drop leg to your receiver. And then from there, uh, the receiver distributes the, the liquid back onto uh, a manifold on the rack, which is your, your liquid line manifold. And then all your branch circuits are on the rack generally. And they're all distributed with solenoids off to the different locations of the store, to the different cases or the different walk-ins, depending. So it's it's a, it's a complex machine. It's got a lot of moving parts. It's got a lot of piping. And at first glance, it can be intimidating because there's a lot of things that uh, until you really sit there and look at it for a while, you may not understand what it's trying to do. But really, it's 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 no different than any other air conditioning or refrigeration system you've worked on. It's the far, as far as the concept, the theory, um, what it's performing, it's just the amount of different circuits can be confusing. So yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. So, so you're going to find that you're going to find these different racks, and they're going to be they're going to have different racks for different reasons. Because in a store, uh, you're going to have cases running at different temperatures. So you're going to have your medium temp, you're going to have your low temp. And in some stores, you may even have a high temp, which is what we call air conditioning, is actually high temp. Um, and some of the racks actually perform the air conditioning part uh, uh, for the store itself. So, okay, cool. Um, so, so that's what you're going to find. You're going to find those in the mechanical room. They're all going to be lined up in order. And generally, each rack is going to be run by some type of computer control system.
2: And then you're going to have like a... Um, like an operator's type computer where you can read all, all this information on, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the control system, the, uh,
0: what we call the EMS or the DEC or whatever you want to call it. Uh, the BAC building automation control. There's a lot of different, a lot of different, uh, makes a lot of different manufacturers.
1: Oh yeah. Um, Tons. tons. Sure. Maybe some
0: some of the people listening to this might recognize some of them is there's Danfoss, um, there's uh, CPC, there's uh, um, microthermo, there's RMC, there's uh, RDM, um, there's there's a lot of different brands, a lot of different makes. There's some really old ones too. Um, oh, trying to remember some of the names of them, but uh, there's many different controllers out there. But basically, the same same theory behind each one is uh, input output boards, sensors. Um, taking in information, processing it, and then relay outputs, uh, opening and closing things, opening and closing valves, opening and closing um, solenoids, all things like, you know, things like that, all performing different functions. And of course, all the information is being relayed back to the controller, uh, set points, and it's automatically controlling everything.
2: Yeah. And then, and then basically, um, it can, you, you program alarms into these things and, and, like, we have some, some control stuff out there, and we have them programmed to email whoever is in charge of that building that, hey, something's wrong. So do you guys do the same thing, program them to email out alerts to the store manager or whatever?
0: Yeah. What what we found is a lot of the stores uh, hire a third-party monitoring system or a company. Okay. And so these uh, controllers are basically um, tied in. Ethernet or landline or somehow so that the uh, external monitoring company can basically see the uh, the mirrored uh, outputs or whatever the the values these boards have on them or I'm sorry not the boards the the controllers and so they can see what's going on so if there's any alarms come up they're automatically aware of them and uh, that's how a lot of service calls are generated Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, basically there's alarm set points. If suction pressures get too high, if head pressures get too high, if cases get out of temperature, um, basically things like that, then yeah, they'll, they'll go into alarm and either they will send an alarm to somebody, generally whoever's in whoever you, the building uh, administrators are or to the monitoring companies and then that's how calls are generated. Yeah, exactly. Like, cool. The, the computer control system is is basic is is very uh, critical to the operation of the rack and keeping things running smoothly. So um, there's there's a lot to it. There's a lot to how the rack runs and why it runs the way it does. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure exactly what all you want to know about that because I could I could give you all the details. <laughs> well, if I you I, want I, I
2: do that. I I do have a few questions. So. Um... Typically on average like how many compressors are you gonna see on on a given rack and and what kind of tonnage? um, Would they go up to in in your experience
0: Basically a rack is is usually sized not by tonnage, but it's sized by one of two things horsepower Okay, or CFM value so Let's say for instance a rack A a typical rack is going to have between four to eight compressors, depending on how much of the store it's serving. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're going to have a medium-temp rack, and generally, most of your store is going to be medium-temp. Your low-temp is going to be your freezers, um, your frozen cases. Like in most stores, in the center of the store, you're going to have your glass door frozen cases. You might have some frozen cases or some frozen food walk-ins in the back of the vault, the ice cream vault. Maybe in your deli, you have a frozen deli, or uh, not frozen deli, but a bakery, a bakery freezer. Um, there's other freezers, but generally the low temp is the minority, and the medium temp is the majority. Medium temp is going to be your produce, your your deli, your red meat, your your dairy, um, things like that, and so that constitutes the majority. But the the medium temp are actually going to be larger, so they're going to have more compressors. Most, most racks consist of anywhere from 15 to 30 horsepower compressors um, you're probably going to have the you're going to have two or three on the larger side maybe 25 horse to 30 horse uh, you're probably going to have the bulk of them be smaller horsepower 20 and 15 uh, horsepower or smaller um, you may have depending on how the rack is controlled a couple of those compressors may have unloaders on them and the purpose of that is really the way the rack works is especially with the 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 ems system is that you want to maintain a certain suction set point and generally as as we all know and if we don't we might want to recall excuse me there that pressure and temperature have a direct relationship mm-hmm. and so we want to make sure that uh, in refrigeration, we're really paying a c- close attention to temperature, not so much pressure. Of course, you want to know that, but when we when we make our decisions in refrigeration, we have to base it on temperature. That's what right. temperature are we trying to maintain in the store in the cases? Um, and and most cases are are have a slightly different temperature. Red meat is like 26, 27 degrees. Uh, dairy is going to be like 35. Uh, produce might be 37. Um, well, we all know air conditioning is 41. Um, and then frozen things like an ice an ice maker or an ice storage bin might be 21 degrees. Frozen food is going to be zero. Ice cream is going to be about minus 10. Um, so everything's different. So that's why there's all these different circuits that come off of the rack. But you want your rack, whether it's medium temp or low temp, you want the suction set point for whatever refrigerant is in that rack to be set for the lowest case necessary. Uh, so okay. whatever your yep. coldest whatever your coldest case in the story is, whether it's on medium or low temp, that's the temperature that that rack is gonna be set for on suction set point. So say, for instance, um, uh, let just think of a scenario here. Say you're using, um, excuse me for one minute here, but we still see, even though R22 is going away, i'll try to think of a different gas here let's uh let's say 407f okay so we're going to use 407f just just as a as a example now let's say that our median temp rack is a plus 25 degree rack and we're going to use our scale for on the dew point side for a 25 degree rack plus 25 medium temp for 407f, we're going to want the suction set point to be 52 PSI. So the computer on the suction group is going to be set to 52 PSI all the time. So those compressors, all eight of those compressors or however many of them are, their job is to all run in order to maintain 52 PSI. Now, if they fall higher or lower than that, some will cycle on and some will cycle off. And then that's why maybe one or two of those compressors have unloaders so that they can, instead of always turning on and off, you're always keeping some load going or some capacity running. You just reduce it, and then you have less cycles. Mm -hmm. Now, there's other concepts. There's a lot of other concepts, and maybe they're going to go over people's heads. I don't know. There might be some listening who get these things. But we have concepts called floating suction. And what that does is that takes that suction set point and as we go into defrost, because as we all, well, not we all, but as is necessary with refrigeration, we have to defrost these cases. Yep. Because most of these cases, even in medium temp, are going to be running lower than freezing, uh, than freezing, than 32 degrees. That's right. Yeah.
2: So our evaporators. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just, I was just agreeing you with saying? you. Yeah. I was saying, yeah, that's right. I was yeah. agreeing, <laughs> I was agreeing with you that they yeah. all have to be defrosted. Yeah. So. Our evaporators are below 32 degrees. We're going to need defrost
0: on pretty much everything. So as cases go into defrost, um, we can change our suction set point based on, on need. Maybe the lowest temp case that requires that we run the rack at 52 PSI goes into defrost. And maybe the next coldest case requires the suction set point to be at 54 PSI or even higher, maybe 56 PSI based on the temperature, the PT relationship of that refrigerant. So that's what they call floating suction. Now the computer basically says the rack that's, the, I mean, the, the coldest case is now defrost. So we have a, an alternative case that we're going to use as our reference for, for suction set point. Uh, okay. So now it floats the suction set point up. It floats it up a little bit. And as it floats the suction set point up, now we're using, now we have a, a closer um, compression ratio on our compressors. And now we're using less energy. So that's one way that they're able to use, to save energy in storage is to float the suction up and down based on need. And they can do the same thing with the head pressure on the condenser. They can bring it as low as possible based on ambient condition. The closer you can put the, uh, the compression ratio together on any given compressor, you can greatly reduce the uh, kilowatt hours on that compressor. So. Um, Interesting things, but that's basically the purpose of the rack. There's a lot to it when, in the things I'm saying. But basically, you're just trying to maintain a suction set point at all times. And uh, um, you're just doing it with a lot more equipment than you would otherwise. <laughs> okay, I, got,
2: I got a couple of questions. Yeah. Then. So Sure. the first one, so we, we want to maintain the lowest possible suction for the cases, so let's say we have three different cases, three different temperatures, and the the, the, the lowest case is satisfied, right? Or actually, let me rephrase that. So we have three different case temperatures, and we want to get down to that lowest one, but one of the cases at a higher temp, it's satisfied. So what do we do now? Do we close off a solenoid valve? going out to that case so we we no longer cool it like how do we stop cooling that one that's satisfied but we got to still maintain um that low that lowest suction set point and running the compressors how do we shut that case down to stop cooling is that through the solenoid valve yeah, that's the there there's different ways of doing that yes and that's a good question very good question
0: um on that on the rack like i mentioned there's a lot of different branch lines so you're going to have, like any other system, you're going to have two pipes going out to that case. You're going to have, um, you're going to have a liquid line, and you're going to have a suction line coming back to the rack. Yep. So there's two different, there's two different ways of controlling that case. The old school way, and probably a lot of guys out there will still see this on some of the older things, is a thermostat in the case and a liquid line solenoid valve, either at the case or at the rack. Um, so as that thermostat satisfies, then of course you shut the solenoid and you stop feeding refrigerant to the case. Yep. Um, or to to a whole lineup of cases, depending. So that's the old school method. It's good, but it's not very accurate. And there's a couple different reasons. Particularly if the solenoid valve is at the rack, because it can be a long distance from the rack to the case. Mm-hmm. And so even if you shut the solenoid, you're going to start. You're going to keep feeding the liquid for quite some time if you're let's say halfway across the store from the case. Um, so the 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 better way of doing that with that old school method is to have the solenoid in the case itself then immediate shut off okay but the problem with that is liquid hammer so we get liquid hammer as soon as we open that um solenoid again because the suction is always going to keep pulling back yeah So once that liquid shuts and and the rest of the rack is still running it's a little different than in a single system where the compressor shuts down too in this case the compressors are still running so once we open that liquid line again well we got liquid hammer a little bit sometimes you'll see those liquid lines jump as soon as that solenoid opens in the case and you can cause cracks, you can get vibration, all kinds of problems in the case. So the newer method of doing it, which is much more accurate for many reasons, is to, what we, is to install what we call a suction stop. So a suction stop basically shuts the refrigeration off on the suction line instead of the liquid line. And it uses the suction stop basically to instantly stop the refrigerant flowing through the, through the evaporator by the refrigerant leaving rather than entering. So we still have refrigerant in the evaporator, and we still have, we still even have uh, vapor in the evaporator. But um, the distances from the rack will help uh, counteract the if any of that recondenses to liquid. So
2: not a big deal, not is, too big of a deal. Is the suction but it's much stop, more accurate. Is the suction stop like a solenoid valve, though? Is it the same general yes. idea? Okay. Same general
0: idea as a, as a liquid line solenoid. It's just a solenoid that shuts the suction line but now we get into a whole nother thing in refrigeration. So they've created dual purpose suction stop valve that also are suction stop EPRs. Now an EPR is an evaporator pressure regulator. Now this is really critical in refrigeration. So we already spoke about the fact that on a rack, we are trying to maintain a certain suction set point. However, we're maintaining the lowest suction set point necessary for the coldest case uh, on the entire rack for that particular rack in that store. But on that rack and on that that line of the cases, we're probably gonna have cases that run much warmer than the coldest case. So how do we keep those cases from getting too cold? We use an EPR, an evaporator pressure regulator. And it 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 can basically have a dual purpose as a suction stop and an evaporator pressure regulator this is a valve on the suction side that can be throttled down and set so that it keeps the evaporator at a particular pressure higher than the pressure on the rest of the rack slightly higher or much higher depending on need so as as the example i used earlier on uh, the gas uh 407f we were looking at um 52 PSI as being our rack pressure, and that would equivalent to 25 degrees. Well, let's say we have another case, like a fresh meat case on that rack, that has to be at 27 degrees. So that would constitute 55 PSI. So for that lineup of cases or that case, we can set the EPR to 55 PSI instead of the 52 PSI that the rack is running at. And that, that suction stop will keep, or that suction stop um, EPR, will keep that particular evaporator running at a slightly higher pressure and higher temperature as required for that case. And yet it has the dual purpose of when defrost comes, um, it can also, when defrost comes or uh, when the case satisfies, and actually it's more defrost um, because an EPR isn't necessarily, uh, let me see how to put this, an EPR kind of takes the place of a suction stop, even though they can be a dual-purpose valve. If you have an EPR, it's going to maintain a constant temperature. Rather than having to open and close the refrigeration on that case, it just constitutes a constant pressure. Um, so you don't necessarily have to always shut the case down with uh, by shutting off a solenoid. Uh, gotcha. There's a lot of different ways of doing this, but you can you can kind of you can make it so that there's a liquid line and an EPR, a liquid line solenoid and an EPR. And a suction stop; they can all be they can all be combined into one valve or a couple of valves. it so it's kind of getting complicated, but these are just some of the different methods. Um, but the EPR suction stop also acts as the means of defrost too. So when defrost comes, it closes the suction stops. EPR shuts the refrigeration off to the case and allows it to defrost. So um, the the invention of those valves, the EPR valve suction stops, has really made uh, case control so much more accurate and so much more efficient than the old method of liquid line
2: solenoids. Yeah, it's it, just it, a much
0: it, better it, way of doing it.
2: It does sound like a really uh, cool way of doing it. And I was going to ask you, is, is is it a mechanical valve or is it is it like a stepper motor controlled electronically? Generally,
0: it's electronic. Okay. Um, they do make pilot versions of them that use pilot gas to do them, but okay. generally they're electronic. The solenoids are all electronic nice um and Sportland i know spoorlin and parker make a, a wide variety of those uh depending on application um but, some of them and they do even make the step valve uh the step valve type now the that are uh, completely electronic and those step valves are great i know those ones that Sportland makes and yes they they basically are the same thing they open and shut for a suction stop or they can be set at a particular uh, step valve setting for uh, epr Purposes, so okay. yes, it, it just depends on the control method being used for mm-hmm. that rack. Whoever designs it, but yeah,
2: they, they they
0: most of the time they're electronic.
2: Okay, so a couple more questions. So we uh, we've satisfied um, a couple zones or whatever, a couple cases, and we mm-hmm. st- we're, we're still running the one. So now that the the suction stop closes, and because the two cases are satisfied, but we want to maintain. The lowest suction, and that one's still running for that lowest um, case. Are we now unloading the uh, the compressors or staging the compressors off on the rack in order to um, so so we're not having as much flow of refrigerant to these cases? That,
0: well, not necessarily, not necessarily. It depends on um, it depends really on what the rest of the cases are doing. Generally, one case isn't going to affect. The, the suction pressure on the rack that much. Okay. What is going to affect suction pressure on the rack is if we go into defrost. Not necessarily if the cases that satisfy. Um, again, like I said, if the EPRs, if it's a store set up with EPRs, generally we're not going um, to have cases satisfying all that much. They're going to maintain most of the time because they're, they're pretty dead on accurate, especially if we have step valves. Those EPRs are going to keep those cases dead on accurate um, most of the time. Mm -hmm. But when we go into defrost, say we take out a whole lineup of cases, maybe five or six cases going to defrost at one time. Now we're going to have uh, an effect on the rack. Okay. We're going to have, um, initially we're going to have less load on the rack because obviously less cases are calling. So it might be, it might be much easier to maintain suction pressure at this point. So yeah, we're going to possibly cycle off a compressor or unload for a little while. However, then after we come out of defrost, now it's a whole different story. And we come out of defrost, and there's been time for the vapor and the evaporators um, to recondense the liquid. So we're going to get uh, a pretty good chunk of liquid coming back to the rack at one time. So as we do that, um, that's going to affect a few things. Um, and remember, it's going to be coming back initially through the suction lines. So it's going to raise suction pressure because the distances from the cases to the rack uh, to those compressors, there will be obviously time for the liquid to to expand Mm -hmm. and most of it to turn to vapor. But we're we're going to definitely raise suction pressure as we come out of defrost. And uh, so obviously now at the end of defrost, compressors are going to cycle on more. We're going to start loading compressors again. And yes. Sometimes under certain circumstances, you even have to have crankcase pressure regulators on the compressors to keep them at a certain point, so you don't uh, so you don't overwork them at the end of defrost. That's not always the case on racks. That generally that generally tends to be an issue more with uh, single systems having to put a crankcase crankcase pressure regulator on a compressor yep. to protect it after defrost. But um, in this case, we usually don't have to do that on racks. But yeah, basically that's that's to answer your question. Uh, we don't necessarily have to cycle compressors on and off or not, not have to, but that generally won't happen just as a few cases get to temperature. Okay.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. So especially
0: especially if it's a large store, especially if it's a large store and
2: the load is spread out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So my other question was, how are we defrosting the cases? What method are we using for that? There are
0: several different methods. So, um, Let's talk first about uh, medium temp. Medium temp, generally, we just have to off-cycle. So that just constitutes in however the method is, the old-school method, shutting off the liquid-line solenoid valves, the newer method, shutting the suction stops, and basically uh, interrupting the refrigeration to those evaporators on those cases. The fan generally will continue to run on medium-temp cases. And it will pull ambient air across and naturally defrost those
2: cases. Yeah. So just an off-cycle, uh, medi- off-cycle, defrost. off-cycle defrost.
0: Off-cycle defrost. Yeah. And that's usually going to be mm, three or four times a day, 35 minutes to 40 minutes mm-hmm. uh, per cycle, generally. So it's usually about every six hours. Um, Load temp is a different story, and there's different ways of doing it. Uh, I'm, I've been familiar with the two major ways of doing it, which is... Um, electric defrost, or hot gas. So I my, my prefer hot gas myself, but I haven't seen a lot of it in California myself. Um, in Texas, we had a lot of hot gas defrost. In California, we primarily use electric defrost. So obviously, low temp, you're going to have a lot of frost and ice accumulation. So you really, you have to have a heat source. You definitely have to have a heat source to, um, Get the defrost necessary. Mm-hmm. Your fans are going to shut off on low temps. You're going to definitely turn the fans off because you don't want to circulate cold air because it's going to impede your ability to
2: to defrost properly. And you don't want to shoot so, water shoot water out of the <laughs> out of the coil as it's defrosting off of it either. Exactly. Yeah. And then
0: you got issues. You got yeah. other
2: issue. Yeah. Um. You can yeah. You can create problems
0: that way as well. Exactly. So hot gas now in a hot gas application on a rack, there's a couple different ways of doing that. There are two pipes and three pipe hot gas uh, racks. So a three pipe hot gas rack, uh, there's a separate pipe from the rack that goes out to the cases carrying the hot gas from the, uh, so there's, there's basically at the rack, you have your suction line and your liquid line, but at the suction line, um, well actually, if this is a three pipe situation, off of the discharge, you have a separate solenoid that's just for hot gas. Um, and it will go out to the racks, and then at the rack I mean, I'm sorry, go out to the cases. And at the case, it'll basically enter the suction line uh, after the suction stop, and it'll have its own solenoid. And basically, it turns, it basically sends hot gas through the system uh, backwards, it sends it through the suction, and it comes, and it, it basically starts, uh, the, um, the latent heat starts to basically change the condition of the vapor into a liquid in the evaporator, mm-hmm. and you start to accumulate liquid back through the liquid line, and it will it will feed basically back to the rack, and the rack will have what they call a uh, a liquid line header or a defrost liquid line header that takes the liquid back. That's a that's a three pipe. A two pipe is pretty much the same, except that the liquid line, I'm sorry, the defrost solenoid or the hot gas solenoid is at the rack and enters the suction line at the rack. So it basically is, again, after the suction stop and it has its own solenoid. So if the case goes into defrost, it'll shut the suction stop so so that there's no ability for the suction to come back to the rack. It'll open the hot gas and it'll discharge the hot gas into the suction line in reverse back to the case going through the suction and then returning to the liquid line back to the rack. And then there's a separate, uh, liquid line return header for that. So, um, that's a much, I don't know if I want to say efficient. I prefer it because it's faster. Mm-hmm. Hot gas is much faster. And, um, it's kind of cool because you got a lot of extra moving parts. You know, you got all the extra solenoids and the reverse, the reverse flow. And, um, sometimes you can actually watch it defrost because it's so fast. Um I, it's, it, uh, it, I guess the you want to say the pros and cons is that to perform hot gas defrost, you're obviously using compressor uh, kilowatt hours because you're basically stealing your own discharge from the rack. Yes. As opposed to electric defrost, you have to have a separate power source. And of course, electric heaters use an enormous amount of energy. Mm-hmm. So it, it's the cost. It's, it's weighing the cost as to which one basically is going to require um, more kilowatt hours. You want to you, do? You want those kilowatt hours to come from your compressors, or do you want them to come from um, an external electric source? But uh, there is different ways of doing it. Like I said, in California, we generally don't have hot gas defrost here very much. But, uh, yeah, so I that's,
2: mean, that's I mean, I don't, I don't do tons and tons of refrigeration, but. All the stuff I take care of, it's, it's all electric, and and yeah, I, yeah, it, it is a very slow process because, I mean, after a while they expand and contract and they don't they don't sit uh, properly anymore. They might be the clearance the the clearance gets bigger and bigger after a while. I notice, but if you're running hot gas mm-hmm. right through that coil, I mean that coil is right in in uh, it's actually touching that ice, so that ice is going to melt right. way qu- quicker. So I I get what you're saying. Um, there is something I did want to ask. Um, like, I guess depending on the, the size of the store, you could have tons and tons of cases, but you never see the piping. So, and, and I know talking to friends and stuff that are in the industry, like we're we're running this piping kind of in. Um, we're digging out trenches and stuff, and then we're burying it. Is that is that how we we do this? Is do we bury the piping um, to go into all these racks, like with poured the concrete? Right?
0: There's there's. There's actually a couple of different ways of doing it. The newer way to do it is to run it all overhead. Okay. Um, in the past, I, I dealt with a lot of stores in the past where, yeah, they, when they're pouring the foundation, it's all trenched. So we have uh, either trenches or tunnels under the floor. There's a few stores I saw that literally had a two or three foot diameter tunnel on, uh, about four or four feet down that there was a, a pit in the back of the store that you could actually enter it and you could actually get in the, the tunnel with the piping and, and, and follow it if you had to in case you had a leak in there but yeah the old school way was to trench it out put all your piping underground and then take it to the back and then bring it up to the, the, the mechanical room or the motor room but more and more these days i see it run overhead so okay. they'll build a uh, they'll build a chase from especially from the center of the store if that's where your frozen food cases are and they'll have it come down from overhead um, support
2: structure. And, okay. Uh,
0: so there's different ways of doing it.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because that that was my question. Like, for some reason, I was under the impression that if they're running under the under the floor in, in these trenches, that we may have some spots. If we have a leak, we're not going to be able to get to that section of piping. Like, is that ever the case? Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I I had a we had a case in
0: Texas. Uh, where it was a store with an underground tunnel under the floor. It was about a two-foot diameter tunnel. You couldn't get in it because there was too much piping in the tunnel. Yep. And uh, we had we had a leak. Uh, it was the, the tunnel uh, came at a at an angle from one corner of the store under the floor out to the frozen food cases. And then under the cases there was a hatch in in the aisle right by the, the glass doors, and you could pull the the hatch up, and you could actually look down and see under the case where the piping all came up from underneath but we had one line of the frozen through cases and it had a pretty severe leak on the liquid line but it was back in far enough where we couldn't get to it from the pit from the pit that was by the cases it was too far into reach and buried with all the other piping but we could get to the other end of the tunnel in the back of the store where the pit was you could actually stand at the other end of it probably about three or four feet below ground level and you could look down the tunnel and you know 30, 40, 50 feet, well, probably 50 or 60 feet down there. You could see at the other end, you could see the other technician with his head sticking down in the floor. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, believe me, I got some stories. This is some interesting stuff. It's, uh, it's crazy what we've had to do. But we had to get that thing repaired, but we couldn't reach the leak. So what we did, uh, the piping wasn't completely cracked. It just had a hole in it. So what we did is um, we abandoned that line we took the one end that we could reach going into the case and we cut it. Well, we took soft copper because stores generally, you're going to use all hard copper, but we didn't, we didn't have that option in the store. So we took, uh, we went and purchased several rolls of half inch uh, soft copper and we welded uh, or we brazed onto one end of where we had cut at the case and we had two techs down there and we had the other end, the other tech at the other end in the pit and cut the other end of the pipe that was still good and started pulling it out. And as he's, as, as, and I was that, I was that tech in the pit. <laughs> as I'm pulling the pipe, the, the new pipe at the other end was already brazed to the other end is being fed through. So we basically using the bad pipe, we fished the, the new half inch line through the tunnel from one end to the other.
2: Yeah. That's, and then when that's we brilliant. got it
0: through, we braised it, we brazed it on each end and we were good.
2: That's brilliant. And so yeah.
0: it was, one way we had to do it, but, uh, it worked in the long run. It worked. So
2: amazing. So yeah, uh,
0: it's one of, one of the uh, drawbacks of having trenches under the
2: store. (laughs) Definitely. So I guess the drawback of having it run through the, um, above is that some of these stores are going to have some high ceilings, right? So you'd have to bring in like a scissor lift or something like that, or a genie boom to get up to these, uh, ceilings to, to, to find these, some of these leaks, wouldn't you?
0: Oh yeah, definitely.
2: Yeah. 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 We've, we've had
0: to do that with uh, pretty much most of them are too tall to get with a ladder. So yeah, you gotta be up on a scissor lift. Um, and then also the other issue with overhead piping um, is leakage because especially on low temp, generally the center of the store is your low temp cases and that's where most of your overhead piping is going to. So your your rubber insulation, your, whatever we call it, Armflex, uh you got to make sure it's really well insulated. Um, it's really well taped, all the seams. And then after time, no matter how well insulated it is, the insulation will saturate with water. Mm-hmm. And especially after many uh, many cycles of freezing the pipe and then defrosting and freezing and defrosting, uh, you'll start to get that stuff rubbing, uh, either wearing through, and then uh, you'll be walking through the store and all of a sudden you'll get a nice cold drip of water on your head. No matter who you are, you look up and yeah, it's time to re-insulate the piping. Yeah. Uh, and some, some of these stores let it go way too long and then it starts raining on the customers. So, um, that's where our piping guys come in. And some of those guys are really amazing because they got to know all, you know, they're, they're really good at cutting all the angles too and knowing how to, uh, to, to cut all the pipe. It's just you cut the insulation at just the right angle on elbows, long radius. Um, how to glue and tape and all that make it look good make sure it's well supported um got to give them credit because it's not fun work especially when that stuff's saturated it's really heavy and it's
2: really gross yeah so well, um yeah professional insulators do a really well do a really well, good job they do they yeah. do
0: i've had to i've had to help them before and i i don't envy what they do but i'd certainly admire it
2: yeah no they they do we we've had professional insulators come out on a few of our jobs and the, it just makes everything look so nice and so fresh when they're finished with it. Indeed, indeed. Well, you know what? We were we were actually going to have a two part um, conversation. We were going to talk about um, high rise chiller plants and whatnot, but we seem to have had a good long conversation on supermarket refrigeration. So we might have to do this again, Mario. Absolutely, I'm well, I'm fine with that. I'm gaining we'll have to have a part 2 on on some high-rise building stuff but um uh you did provide you, you provided so much good info um during that conversation and uh you taught me a bunch of stuff that i didn't know so i really appreciate that no problem you got it
0: it's uh for me it's it's a joy to talk about it it's interesting i like to share what i know oh next.
2: i you can hey man i can i can i can feel your passion just ringing through as you're talking about it so what 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 I think we should do is we'll uh, we'll, we'll let the listeners go and um, you and I can can have a chat. Um, we'll say bye as, as we normally do. So thanks guys, um, Mario. Thank you very much for for getting onto the podcast and I hope you guys enjoyed listening. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Gary. Yeah, no problem, man.
1: All right, so what I take from that conversation is this. Supermarket refrigeration is going to challenge you. And if you like a challenge, that might be the part of the industry where you can kind of flourish. I mean, you're going to have to put the time in, obviously, because as we discussed, things need to be up and running, um, kind of ASAP like yesterday. So if you're out on a job, I mean, sometimes... You ain't going home. That's just the way it is. If you're on call, you might be gone all weekend. If you're on call, you might get a call at eight in the morning and not be home till two in the morning. It's just the way it is. It's, it, it's how the industry kind of, kind of rolls and that part of it. So Mario, thank you so much for getting onto the podcast. Um, I appreciate it and the listeners do as well, or they wouldn't be listening to you and they wouldn't be getting this far into the podcast. So. For me, um, supermarket refrigeration is going to challenge you mentally because there's so many moving parts. And if you like that kind of thing, it might be the thing for you to do. All right. And I'm sure there's tons of work out there in that part of the, that part of the industry. I'm sure there's tons of it because there's a lot of supermarkets around. Um, Nobody stops going shopping. Everything needs to stay running. Okay. I'm out guys. That's the podcast. IBH will